Hi there. Welcome to this bonus episode of the podcast. Today I'll be speaking with Laura Boone, who works, here comes her job title, as the Lloyd's Register Foundation Public Curator, colon, Contemporary Maritime, at the Royal Museum's Greenwich in London. A few weeks ago, the museum reached out to ask if they could discuss a new photography exhibit that's opening soon. It's called uh, Exposure, Lives at Sea, and it's pretty unique. It features photographs from six different maritime photographers. As we discussed in the interview, the uh, contributors to the exhibit, they are maritime professionals who also do photography, which gives them this unique perspective as these fully embedded professionals who are documenting their experience. The exhibit includes contributions from a chief engineer, a commercial fisherman, a conservation worker, a drilling rig worker, a marine ecologist, and a data manager from the British Antarctic Survey. So a pretty pretty broad set there. On the podcast here, we usually talk to climate-relevant researchers, but I felt like highlighting an exhibit on maritime professionals made a lot of sense for the show. As we discussed in the episode, without maritime professionals, oceanography, which is definitely a climate-relevant science, would just be impossible. There'd just be no way to do it without those maritime professionals. So I think it's exciting to put their work into that real-world and historical context. The exhibit opens in London on Wednesday, December 2nd, and they expect it to be open for 12 to 18 months, although obviously the virus pandemic situation could affect that timing. Admission to the exhibit is free, but you must book a ticket in advance. That's part of how, that's part of their measures on how they're keeping people safe during the visits by limiting attendance and by kind of staggering that attendance. And people will, will be wearing masks and things, of course. You can read more on their website at rmg.co.uk, and you, you can also follow the museum at RM Greenwich on Twitter. So let's go ahead and get into this conversation with curator Laura Boone about the exhibit titled Exposure Lives at Sea. Here we go. So thanks for doing this. Thanks for taking some time out to talk with me no, this morning to chat about, uh, about this exhibit and about, um, the museum in general, I think it would be you know, really interesting to hear about that. And I, I have a confession to make, and this is going to shock you, I think. Um, you're going to be really disappointed. So I have lived in the UK um, for over seven years now, um, and I haven't I haven't been to the Greenwich Museum yet. I haven't made it down there. That's <laughs> I okay. need to do it. Well, now that we've got the <laughs> exhibition open, you've got an extra reason to come down. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, I really need to, to do that. I sort of, uh, I have a, a friend who likes to say that you should leave unfinished business for the place, you know, so like you have a reason to keep going back. But um, I don't think I have to do that with London's, but London's <laughs> always going to have, London's always going to have unfinished business yeah, <laughs> for me, you know, definitely. and always new, new things happening. Yeah. At the, at the end of last lockdown, I think lots of Londoners had noble plans to kind of tick off some of the more um, like, tourist-centered attractions that perhaps we, we never get around to going to. Um, but I, I don't know how many of us actually managed that. Um, <laughs> I 
I walked past Buckingham Palace twice, which I wouldn't normally do on a walk. So that was my like tourist (laughs) thing ticked off. (laughs) Just notice it like, yeah, there it is. There it is. There's there's hardly anyone there. So I can actually (laughs) see it and then, and then wander off into the park. So you're the curator of the museum. Yes. um, So I'm the Lloyd's Register Foundation Public Curator of Contemporary Maritime, um, which is a little bit of a mouthful. Um, And my role focuses on um, contemporary maritime. So starting from 1949 onwards, um, right up to the present day, and even looking to the future. So um, I think I'm quite lucky with maritime that it's such a broad um, subject. So you get right from the very kind of science and ecology and conservation focus to kind of mega technologies, and then the very kind of social history people focused. So it's a really nice mix. So it gives you a broad view, like you said, of the historical dimensions, the scientific dimensions, the kind of day-to-day dimensions. Uh, I got to admit, I don't have a great sense of like what a museum curator <laughs> does, like what's your day-to-day look like and what the kind of things you're responsible for. Yeah. Um, so I think one of the great things about the job is that the, the day-to-day is so varied, um, but I do often end up kind of juggling a few, a few different projects. So some of the things we do are very public facing. So I might be um, engaging with some school children or some families, um, right up to kind of speaking at, at international conferences. Um, but I think that the focus of my job is taking objects in our collection and taking kind of stories um, and, and making them interesting to, to the general public and, and people. And I think that's the thing I really like about the job is, is that kind of engagement mm. um, and really kind of opening up this world for, for other people. And, and hopefully that's what we've done with the exhibition. Oh, that's exciting. That made me think of, uh, this is going to sound unrelated, but it, it is related. Uh, I went to this one day seminar. This was outside of my area but I was just interested in it. And it was on um, volcanoes, volcanic emissions, and the impact on societies that that's had you know, throughout history. This uh, project you know, it involved many different archeologists and also scientists who deal with volcanoes and volcanic eruptions. And at the end of their scientific project, they had as their kind of final outreach step uh, in their plans was like, well, we're gonna have a museum exhibit. And I thought that was such a cool idea and uh, it's just not something that I usually see in, you know, grant proposals on the oceanography side. Mm. It's like, well, this is where we're, he- we're heading. But you're right that a museum exhibit can give you such a nice way to put not only some scientific work in context. I guess that's what you're doing, though. You're putting it into a context and you're, cura- yeah. you're curating it <laughs> as the curator by putting it into like, yeah, here's the history. Here's the social element of it. So that's, that's really exciting. I remember that I meant to ask you a question um, how are you doing? <laughs> how's, yeah. how's lockdown going? <laughs> um, I'm good, thank you. Um, yeah. So I think my my lockdown has very much been um, engulfed by by the exhibition. So mm. um, we began. We had like the very first initial project meeting where we brought together all of the team from different departments like two days before the museum closed and we had these right. slightly like shell-shot conversations where people like we think the museum's going to close but it'll be fine and, and we'll be open soon and, and maybe we'll have a few weeks where we're just going to have to do things online which isn't generally museums aren't that into kind of working mm. from home and, yeah. and technology-based yeah. things 
Um, but I think like lots of people would just assume it was a very short, short thing. And then obviously it worked out that the entire exhibition pretty much was completely planned and developed um, online, apart from the very end uh, build stages when we obviously mm. had to physically be here. Um, wow. So yeah, so in some ways it was a, a great privilege to be sitting at home and um, I think for lots of us, our world in lockdown became quite small. We weren't really going anywhere. We weren't really seeing people. Um, but to be able to kind of explore other people's worlds and, and spend my time with these kind of incredible photographs um, was was great. I think it added to my sense of kind of itchy feet and, and wanderlust where I really wanted to get out of London and um, looking at some of these photographs. And then from some of the other photographs, you look at these kind of extreme elements and isolation and you think, well, actually <laughs> being stuck in, in London um, isn't that bad. So, yeah, I think... I'll always remember the kind of exhibition mixed in with with lockdown, which is right. is, is quite interesting, I guess. Yeah. So yeah, being there are worse places to be stuck, I guess. Yeah. Than, than London potentially. Yeah. Do we want to talk about the exhibit some? About um, so it's kind of it's come together now. It's opening yeah, next week. Yeah. yeah. So very excingly, we've um, yesterday found out what tier we're in. So um, the the exhibition is able to open on the the second of December, which is. A big relief, very exciting. Um, so you, the exhibition is called Exposure, Lives at Sea, and it's made up of photography exploring what it's like to work within the, the modern maritime sector. Our definition of, of maritime is, is very broad. So we've got from someone working as a data manager for the British Antarctic Survey um, to a commercial fisher to kind of conservation scientists and, and a few things in between. I think it's really great that all six of our photographers are employed within the sector they're there for, for a job other than being a, a photographer because it means they can give this really kind of intimate view it is them letting us into their their world as it were um and i think that's really great because often especially with some sectors of, of maritime like the oil industry or shipping a lot of the photography that comes out is commercial and it's paid for by the company so it can end up kind of quite posed or quite artificial so it's great to have these right. really kind of honest um portrayals of, of what it's like one of the things that my my time in the field taught me was how important all of the support people are they're basically they're the ones keeping the ship going they're the ones making sure that we're safe and fed and that not only are we safe and fed, but that we can do the science that we want to do, that we need to do, that we can get where we need to get to take measurements and things. And um, it's really for a place like the ship, it becomes their home for several months at a time. And they've got these teams of scientists, you know, coming onto the ship, leaving the ship for maybe a couple of months periods. And they're, they're really the glue that holds the whole operation together. And uh, so I think it's really excellent that you all are highlighting you know, you're all highlighting not just like the scientists who work in this area, but the people who are making the day-to-day -day stuff really happen because the science wouldn't happen without these folks. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's just really excellent. So I see you've got, there's six different photographers here. And uh, how did you pick just six? Because there <laughs> must be loads of, I think I know at least one more who you could put on the list. There, there must be loads and loads of uh, people who do take great photos yeah. uh, in the polar regions and maritime in general when they're working. Yeah, I think um, it was um, one of the, it was very time consuming um, and it was um, quite challenging in a really great way. Um, but it was, I think, trying to balance 
really amazing, strong, striking photographer photography that was interesting in its own right, but also that had like a really strong narrative behind it. Um, mm. And um, for example, with the the polar um, photography, we could find lots of photographers who are maybe taking pictures of their um, surroundings and amazing kind of uh, photographs of the landscapes and the wildlife. Um, but what we were really keen to do was focus more on the the people and and their day to day life and the science that they were doing. Um, so that that did kind of help narrow it down. Um, but yeah, for some areas that there was definitely kind of more than than one perhaps that we we could have picked. Um, mm. For um, other areas, say for example, um, we have some photography from an oil rig worker, um, and and that's incredibly um, rare to have somebody um, able to to kind of document their their life generally because um, photography is quite restricted in these areas. And, and it's just quite an unusual thing to do. So, um, yeah, for some it was hmm. kind of more tricky to find them than, than others. So how were you able to, how were, so this person, you say it's quite restricted normally, taking photos and drilling rigs, but this person got around it somehow or they were exempt from that somehow. Um, how, did they, how did they pull that off? Yeah, <laughs> so I think a lot of it was kind of determination. Um, so hmm. Peter Ian Campbell um, was actually a, a photographer to start with um, and he was really interested in kind of industrial areas. He was really inspired by um, historical photos of kind of industrial Victorian spaces and then what happens to those spaces when they're no longer um, viable and they become slightly derelict. Um, so he was based up in Scotland. Obviously, the oil industry is is a really important employer up there, but it's kind of on the periphery. So if you're not in it, it's hard to find out what's going on. Um, and, and he explored how, as a photographer, he could go out there. Um, and it's incredibly expensive. It's probably about seven thousand pounds just for one helicopter flight out there, which a company isn't isn't going to cover. Um, and as I said before if a company employed him to go they'd be paying him to do very kind of pose commercial photographs to kind right, of promote right. the company um so he decided to uh, self-fund his own offshore training mm. um which is is quite an intense training so um the the headline thing that everyone always uh, refers to is you get submerged in a, a fake helicopter in a oh, in a right. very cold swimming pool so you have yeah. to do these kind of like survival trainings um, and then he basically got employed um, on the the drilling platform, um, basically kind of like as a steward, so to doing kind of day to day housekeeping and and keeping things going. Um, and this is it where I gave him a kind of backstage pass to be able to explore all of the rigs. Um, and for the first few months, he didn't take a single photo. Just while he got comfortable with the team, um, was learning his job. Like any of us starting a new job, it takes a while to kind of settle in. Um, and then he began to take um, photographs of of life there to get around um, needing permits and licenses, um, which is mainly a safety thing. Um, mm. Obviously they have to make sure that there's no electrical equipment on board that could cause sparks. He actually shot in film. Oh yeah. yeah. So um, when you, you go through um, his, when you go through the exhibition, a lot of his photographs have a really kind of nice, almost timeless um, quality to them. And by being mm. shot by film, they're all square, some are in black and white. Um, but yeah, it meant that by doing that, he he avoided the need for, for permits and, and therefore was able to kind of get access to something that, that otherwise wouldn't be possible. 
Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. I kind of, this is a too broad of a question, but I wondered if you could tell uh, me a little bit about what you learned in putting the exhibit together, if there's anything that stands out as something that, you know, you didn't know before that you, that putting the exhibition together really um, confronted is too strong of a word, but, you mm-hmm. know, put it, put it in front of you, something that maybe you hadn't thought about before. Yeah, um, I, I think there's been a, a, a few things and, and some of them it's just kind of the complexity of day-to-day life um, that you start kind of reading about, so for example, with the Haley Research Station for Bass um, or just being on a, a, a ship that, that's travelling across the Atlantic, just the kind of complexity of, of them staying in touch with their families or getting supplies, I think that was always um, kind of su- surprising. Um, but I think the, the the biggest surprise during this has been um, just how important maritime is, um, which as a maritime curator might um, sound a little bit strange, um, because obviously when uh, putting on the exhibition, we were motivated by by knowing that that we wanted people to understand more about the maritime sector. We know that kind of 85% of global trade is still traveling by ships. Um, we knew the importance of the ocean for ecosystem services, but I think doing it in lockdown um, kind of really brought home that to us, um, just kind of how very important it was. Um, and um, at the moment, due to kind of restrictions on, on movement, um, there's several hundred thousand sailors currently still stranded at sea. And where basically they're unable to get home um, and they're still having to work um, because the relief crews can't get to them. Um, and actually one of our sailors, uh, Caesar, who's um, a chief engineer, um, while we were working on the exhibition and selecting photos with him, he himself was stranded just off the coast of Brazil. Oh. So he oh, wow. yeah, so he spent an extra three months um, working. So in, in total, he was away for home for eight months. He'd expected to go for five. Um, and so we were kind of WhatsApping when he got uh, close enough to signal. Um, and I think that just really brought it home. And, and obviously lockdown has been trying for all of us to di- different degrees. But I think perhaps um, the story of seafarers who are still transporting all the food we need, um, PPE, all, all the equipment, all the things we rely on on day to day life um, have just been really severely impacted. And I think that hasn't perhaps had the, the prominence that that it deserved and, and it continues to be a, a problem now. I mean, we're many months into this and, and there's, if anything, it, it's kind of the situation's getting worse just because it, it, it's being compounded and hmm. um, there's currently seafarers who've been at sea for about 18 months now oh, uh, <laughs> without, um, and, and there's really basic things that they can't access. So um, there's a story of a, a captain that had to learn how to remove two of his crew's teeth um, oh because they weren't allowed to shore for the dentist and these these poor crew members were, were in serious pain. Um, oh my God. And yeah, I mean, you'll you'll know from from going on on field trips, medical evacuation is something that you you want to avoid at all costs. But it it's an unwritten rule that if you need it, countries will accept those those helicopters. Um, and at the moment, that isn't happening. So there's there's wow. there's been a case where unfortunately a seafarer had a stroke, um, and they weren't able to get the the helicopter to him. Um, he he has recovered, but he hasn't had the 
he hasn't perhaps recovered as, as well as he could if it had received the medical treatment that he needed. So, oh, that's um, awful. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's been um, something that's really perhaps brought home even further why it's important that people understand and, and appreciate kind of the, the maritime sector and the roles that, that seafarers are playing a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. That's, um, it's really striking what you said and uh, to think about, you said it was on the order of hundreds of thousands or yeah. it's, you know. Yeah, oh, so yeah. The, it, it's a hard number to calculate because um, just it's nearly every nationality in in the world represented yeah. um, and there's no kind of central register, but yeah, it's, it's currently still estimated at, at, in the region of hundreds of thousands. Right, yeah. It brings home the point that being able to stay home and being able to work from home and being able to really isolate yourself is a big privilege. Yeah. That it's a privileged position to be in. And yeah, um, definitely. And to still get paid for, for staying at home, whereas mm -hmm. um, for a lot of seafarers, they're on contract. So if you can't get to your ship and you can't work, you're, you're not going to get paid, um, yeah. which is obviously a, a huge concern for them and their families. Yeah, and still, if they're stuck out at sea, I mean, they must have to stress out about like the housing situation. You know, like how did they? Because you know, from what I understand, seafarers will make plans uh, in terms of their housing situation. You know, kind of based on how long they think they're going to be out. Yeah. So they might. You know, I, you know, there's lots of different ways to arrange it, but mm. um, oh. that's something that could be difficult to manage remotely, right? Yeah, and I mean, for lots of them, they do have kind of settled family life on land. So um, there's cases where people have missed their wedding date because they've they've not been able to get home. Um, there's there's lots of cases of people missing kind of the birth of their children, um, yeah. whereas they'd scheduled that they they would be home. Um, and although seafarers are very used to spending kind of long periods of time at sea. Um, and, and lots of research so they're saying that you but you know psychologically how long you've signed up right. for so it's a very different kind of mindset to suddenly just not really knowing when when you'll be able to get home yeah i guess we we all experienced a little version of that of that just the uncertainty part of it yeah you know, certainly back in april may june you know we were all basically like well we have no idea how long this is gonna yeah. go <laughs> um you know which it looked indefinite which now it's I'm not trying to equate those two things. Mm. Like obviously being stuck at sea is super different from being able to quarantine in your house or to isolate in your house. But um, that you're right, that extra element of the uncertainty of how long is this going to last just makes it that much worse. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think that's an interesting point about the kind of relevance of the, the seafarers experience. And I think that's something that we tried to draw out in the exhibition because sometimes because they're working in such kind of different or extreme environments, um, it can seem a little bit maybe unrelatable. Um, whereas actually there's, there's a huge kind of um, relatability to their experience, even if it's perhaps at that kind of <laughs> higher, higher scale. So um, I guess things like the importance of, of food and routine and the importance of, of community. Um, and that's something that really comes out in the exhibition, I think. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like the um, the people you're on a ship with, just for example, um, one of the things that struck me about being on a, a research ship was the reality of 
yeah, these are the people you're going to see for the next month. And that was only one month, right? That was, yeah. wasn't that long, but like, yeah, this is it. This is, <laughs> these are all the humans you're going to interact with. So like, it's important that you can live next to them and can be okay with them. And, and it's, it's sure much nicer if you actually feel properly integrated into that little community. And if you feel like you can, can bond with people and yeah. Um, so that's a, uh, yeah, it's got to be so trying to just have it drag on month after month yeah. and to not not know when the end date is. Yeah, I think on the extreme of kind of small community is um, Mike, who is one of our photographers. He was working for the British Antarctic Survey, um, mm-hmm. but he was out at the Haley Research Station. Mm-hmm. Um, so for him, the eight month winter season, which he did twice, um, there's 13 of them. So you've got 12 other people and, and that's that's it. So if there's, if there's an emergency, you know, those are the people that you have to rely on, but just day to day, that's, that's everyone, mm-hmm. um, which is, I think, yeah, that's something that I always find startling the idea. <laughs> and these yes. aren't necessary. These, I mean, obviously we've all been kind of locked down with, with family or housemates, but those are perhaps people that we've, we've chosen. Um, mm, yeah, that's right. As opposed to just uh, people you're assigned to. Yeah. You, you will now spend the next several months with just these people. There's yeah. a the the British Antarctic Survey also runs a couple of stations on South Georgia Island, and one of them is the Bird Island Station. And if I remember right, over the winters, um, I think there's only four people there over yeah. the winters. And so it's really like mm. you know cold and dark, and you're just with four. It's just you and three other people. That's it for several months. Yeah. Um, um, Mike's told me that they've um, kind of, they spend a lot of time working out how different personalities will work t- together, and hmm. having done it for for many decades, they've they've got it down to a little bit of a fine art of um, how to make sure that not only are these people really great at their job and, and able to work with these extreme environments, but actually that their their personalities will um, all work together, which is is quite a feat, I think. <laughs> It is, yeah. I was just trying to think who it is because I work for the British Antarctic Survey yeah. too, and I was just trying to think like who who is it in the building who has <laughs> that particular expertise. We got to make sure we keep them. Yeah. Um, I think there's a little bit of trial and error too. You know, as you get to know new people, you just have to ex- experiment and see. Yeah. Um, but certainly, sending somebody south for the mm. for the winter, yeah. yeah, you definitely do need to think about how their personality will match up or not with the other people there yeah i think um also i guess there's the mentality perhaps of the people that go into it because um one of our other photographers pt and campbell out on the oil rigs um and generally they're 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 there for only weeks or a couple of months at a time um before they have leave although you're likely to then see the next people the same people when you come back from leave so it's it's kind of on off community um, he says that generally people are of the mindset that they're all in this together and they need to get through to their next leave and they're in this environment, they're doing really long work hours, but actually it's going to be much better if they are kind of kind to each other and collaborate and get on well. So I guess that having that kind of slight mindset also um, helps each other. Yeah, that's right. I've got a little, tiny anecdote along yeah. those lines. Um, so uh, on the ship, mm. one time we went out onto like some small inflatable boats. It was myself, uh, one other science person, and then two of the crew members. And, you know, we were out a ways from the ship. 
we could see it floating in the distance. And um, we were just taking some surface water samples, basically. And one of the crew members let out this big sigh, and he was basically, he just said, uh, I had to get off that ship. <laughs> I had to get off that ship. And like, so, you know, I think they do, I mean, everything you said about let's try to be on the same team and get through this together is absolutely true. They absolutely do. Mm. Like on this cruise, that's what they were doing. That's that they were trying to embody that spirit, but yeah, they get, people can get a bit itchy sometimes yeah. <laughs> and you have to, and like, so just the experience of not being on the ship, even on a tiny boat for a few minutes is like a huge relief for this crew member. Yeah. Um, I feel like that would make a good photo if you could capture that. <laughs> <laughs> just that look of relief on their face. Um, yeah. yeah. And I think um, that kind of fun and release, as it were, is something that we explore in the exhibition as well. So um, for Mike at, at Bass, we have things like they do a, a film competition each year between all the different um, international research stations. Um, so the, the photo we have, it looks like a little bit of a kind of prison um, lineup where they're in like their orange jumpsuits from the Haiti research station. Yeah. Um, we have pictures of them celebrating Christmas. Um, Whereas um, then from Caesar, who's the chief engineer on a commercial ship, um, there's things like them flooding the top deck to make a bit of an impromptu swimming pool. Um, and it's quite a surreal image because it's just some men in their like swimming shorts just like uh, <laughs> spread <laughs> across the ship. Um, and then um, also the kind of traditions of, of bringing that community together, but also celebrating um, so, for example, um, I don't know if you've heard of crossing the line, which is a, a very old yeah. tradition. Yeah. Um, so for, for anyone who's not familiar with it, crossing the line is the celebration of crossing the equator. For the, mm -hmm. it's, it's mainly focused on the crew members who it's their first time. Um, and historically, sometimes it, it perhaps the modern um, sensibilities um, wasn't particularly pleasant. Um, we might refer to it kind of as, as hazing. Um, whereas now they've, they've kept some of the traditions, but it's, it, it's generally kind of um, a lot more pleasant. Um, but, but it's kept uh, some of the traditions. So at the heart of it, you have being tested by Neptune, god of the sea. Right. Um, and so he'll give you some trials. You get tested by the, the devil. Um, and you um and somebody's have, playing the, that role right somebody, yeah so the, cap, the captain or somebody is playing yeah the role so so all of the different seafarers dress up um some of the photos sometimes look a little bit almost kind of stag party-esque um right and um traditionally you would have kind of crawled through the very kind of smallest areas of the ship um and get very very dirty um uh -huh. Now, at least in the photos we have, um, they just use a piece of, of pipe, but it, it's open. Um, and then they use a wonderful mixture of different condiments to make like the, the sludge that okay, you normally right, find right. in the, yeah. So I think in our photos, it's made from ketchup, mustard, honey, and a few other things. Um, apparently each ship has its different like mm. mix that they think works best. Um, yeah. And then at the very end of it, you, you have to baptize yourself in the, the sea when you've been kind of proven to be this, this worthy uh, seafarer. 
Mm. Um, so in our photo, we have it's it's, a, it's actually a very strong image. It's taken just right at that that perfect moment. Um, but they're basically in a, a giant um, wheelie bin um, being baptized in the sea. Um, <laughs> so I think it's it's great to see those kinds of moments of really bringing in that that community. Um, yeah. But also those traditions, whether they're they're relatively new, um, and on the bath stations they. They have their traditions going back right from the very start of their research stations to yeah. um, seafarers at sea, where some of their traditions are hundreds of years old. The uh, from what I've heard, I haven't done the crossing the equator um, you know, ceremony or trial or whatever mm-hmm. we want to to call it, but they still do it on the the bass ships, from what I understand. But it is absolutely meant to be voluntary. You know, the, <laughs> the captains are very careful to say like, "Well, there's this old tradition. If yeah. you want to do it." absolutely we'll do it for you that's fine but if you don't want to there's no real pressure so yeah you know you don't actually have to do it because that would be uh probably you know problematic from many standpoints including just uh you know it's not cool for your employer to force you to crawl through a tube of <laughs> con- of uh, smeared with old ketchup and stuff like this <laughs> yeah but, but if you want to but if you want to um <laughs> yeah and generally people get little handmade certificates um signed by neptune himself um and so in the collection we do have some certificates that people maybe gained when they were about 17 18 and and have kept um so i think it for some people and obviously it should always be optional it is quite a special moment um yeah. and it's quite, i guess it might be that kind of idea of acceptance um i like the idea that neptune is, is bureaucratic and has pa- paperwork <laughs> has paperwork so, yeah. yeah proper uh, forms to <laughs> fill out I'm like all right now we got the 1079 i'm going to sign you <laughs> yeah. yeah um but yeah so it's an important piece of paperwork for some seafarers i guess is, is proving they've been a approved by Neptune himself and um yeah and food as well I don't know if you found that um when you've been at sea food is always a really important one both for morale strength um but I think also kind of bringing that community together yeah absolutely on the James Clark Ross the ship that I was on they fed us really really well and multiple I mean, you could easily gain weight on that ship without <laughs> any trouble. Like there was a breakfast bar, cooked breakfast, lunch, dinner. You could get there's a cheese course, and because you're working on the ship, none of it costs you anything. So you can just have as much as you want, which is a little dangerous. Um, but uh, yeah, and the they, they want to make sure you're you're fed. But yeah, absolutely. Like I remember, um, you know, just I did have a moment of of panic when I when we first got on the ship where I, I did have a little bit of like, Oh no, what if I don't like the food? Like I'm stuck on the ship for a month. What if the food's not, you know, okay for me. Um, but after a couple of meals, I relaxed and <laughs> found like, no, this is amazing. They're, yeah. they're really, really good yeah. at what they do. Yeah. Um, it, we, we, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no. I was going to say we had fun trying to make a latte cause they have these, um, they have like, we were running between different floors of the ship cause mm. like you could actually get, milk which they had frozen on the ship and they had kind of uh you know uh every day they you know refilled the milk dispenser with some frozen frozen (laughs) milk and they also had shelf stable milk and uh which was a bit plasticky Mm -hmm. but uh so it was fun to try to recreate that kind of coffee tradition of making a latte on the ship and kind of have that tether um i also remember how important the dessert cookies were they like really 
I don't know. They just made me feel better. <laughs> just like a nice almond and sugar cookie. I just yeah. like felt better. It like really did lower my stress level to have little treats like that. Yeah. It's often um, said that the, the chef on the ship is the, the most important crew member um, because obviously if they do their job well, it's great for morale. If they don't, um, <laughs> it's going to cause some serious problems for the crew. Yeah. Yeah. I was um, careful to to say thanks a lot and express my <laughs> gratitude to the to the chefs yeah um one of my other projects is an oral history project where um we record um kind of people's lives i guess um and their experiences of being in the merchant navy and being at sea um and then we also have a historical collection that um record life at sea right from kind of 1890 onwards and it's really interesting that all through that time the the food that they were given is, is really important um and uh what we find is that certain lines had reputations for the food being not quite so good and um mm. that might um or the company being a bit cheap in, in what they pay um so it might be to the chef to buy the food so it might be that people would be put off working for certain lines just because the food wasn't gonna going to be as good yeah, um, fair enough. which is, is completely fair enough um mm. I know uh, Mike, he worked for Bass because in the winter, there's just the 13 of them. Um, they do have a chef, um, but on their days off, the different crew members would have to like take over and, and do the cooking for that day. And he said it's one of the most stressful um, kind of days of his life was just the pressure of cooking for, for everyone, just because he, like, he wanted it to be good, but also generally we don't cook for that many people. So. <laughs> Yeah, they do, that on the, they do that on some of the stations. I think the King Edward Point station in South Georgia, I think they don't have a regular chef. I think it is just yeah. done on a rotation like that. So yeah. yeah, then hopefully if you're lucky, you get stuck with a, a set of people who are all at least decent yeah. at cooking. Um, and I think that's another parallel with lockdown where I think for a lot of us, food did become a lot more important or... Um, lots of us kind of took up baking or yeah um, because we had less perhaps to look forward to or we wanted to mark out different days so I know like at the weekend we'd try and cook something a little bit more exciting to mark that it was still the weekend um, they, um, and it did make me laugh looking through Mike's photos that one of the things he did to keep himself busy um, was to try and make his own sourdough bread which <laughs> at that point in lockdown, it seemed like everyone was trying to make sourdough bread. So um, perhaps... Somehow that took off. Yeah. yeah. Somehow that became the thing. It, apparently <laughs> it's a thing. If people become isolated, we go to a sourdough bread. So. <laughs> what can I grow that I can later eat? Yeah. Yeah. That I don't necessarily need a garden for, that I can just kind of do in my, yeah. In my place. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, good. Um, I was kind of curious... So it's going to open, like you said, uh, you know, the 2nd of December. And I guess you might not actually know, how long are you planning to have it up, um, the exhibit? Yeah, so at the moment, it's definitely open for a year. Um, and that might extend up to about 18 months, depending on um, if we have to lock down again. <laughs> right, right. Okay, um, and nice. a, few, a few other variables. But yeah, so we definitely got a year. Um, it's completely free. Um, you just need to pre-book a ticket on the museum's um, website, um, just as our kind of COVID safe. Um, and unusually, because we started planning this exhibition at the start of lockdown, um, it's been designed to be um, 
very kind of COVID safe as an exhibition. Mm -hmm. So um, there's plenty of room in there to, to socially distance. <laughs> Good. Yeah, plenty of room. Um, I imagine people, are they uh, wearing masks inside probably? I'm imagining. Yeah. 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 So unless um, people have a, a medical exemption, then we ask that everyone wears a mask inside. Yeah. Good. Well, I'm glad it's open for <laughs> at least a year, maybe 18 months, because um, there's some light at the end of the tunnel now, isn't there? Finally, there's several vaccines out there that work, that yeah. are actively being developed, that, um, you know, I think the UK government has plans to even start deploying one of them, if I read right, uh, before too long. Um, similarly, I think in the US, they're making moves to, to head in that direction. So, uh, in contrast to just a few months ago, there might actually be light at the end of the tunnel. Um, I don't think we're going to necessarily go right back to everything being normal. It's going to take a long time, mm. one, to roll out the vaccinations, and two, you know, the vaccines are, I mean, the, the efficiency, the effectiveness, what is it, like 90%, 95%. So, well, there's still those 10% and 5%, right? So, we probably will need to keep being mindful about it's not that the risk is 100% gone, but it, it hopefully the vaccines will help us like greatly reduce that risk. Yeah. So that's exciting. Yeah, I think I'm optimistic about being able to get to London sometime <laughs> in the next year. I think that should be possible, right? Yeah. <laughs> cool. And uh, that's good. I was wondering, we do have listeners kind of all over the place and I could understand why you wouldn't necessarily want to just throw all the, uh, take the photos online because you know you want to keep it as a, a curated exhibit but are there things that people you know outside of the uk or who, who won't be coming to the uk are there things that they can do to engage with this material somehow um yeah so um on the museum's website which is rmg.co.uk um there are some of the the images so that you can kind of get an introduction um but what we've also created that's on social media is some small interviews with each of the photographers that they recorded them themselves mm -hmm. um where they just talk about their work um and they also talk about kind of their motivation and it's all part of them giving us an insight into their lives and there's also a little bit of a kind of behind the scenes as to how we put the exhibition together um, so I definitely recommend um, going online to have a look at those um, and then throughout the year um, we're going to have uh, various programming and events and, and panels and those kinds of things I'm just exploring some of the topics a little bit more in detail. Good <laughs> that's exciting is there anything else you want to talk about about the exhibit? Anything else? I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, thanks very much for your time, Laura. Um, Thank this you. has been fun. It's been fun to learn about the exhibit um, from the curator, from the person <laughs> who you know had so much to do with putting it together. Um, yeah, great. And uh, I will. Uh, I'm going to make plans to come see it. You know, probably not like January, February, but <laughs> as things continue to get safer, fingers crossed with the vaccine. Yeah. Summer would be a great time. I, I like London in the summer a lot. Definitely, yeah. And we're very lucky to be right in the Royal Park, so um, there's plenty of green space to explore. Absolutely. <laughs> good. Well, thank you, Laura. Have a good uh, day and rest, good rest of your, uh, and a good weekend as well. You too. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye. There you have it. My chat with Laura Boone, who is the curator. Hold on, let me go back and give the full title here. The Lloyd's Register Foundation Public Curator, colon, Contemporary Maritime, at 
Royal Museums Greenwich in London. It's a long title. It uh, takes up a lot of room on a CV. So thanks again for coming to speak with me, uh, Laura. And uh, thank you to Victoria uh, Matram for reaching out, getting this whole thing started. Okay, I'm a little slow. I'm just going to leave it like that. I'm a little slow right now. It's late. It's a little bit late recording this. Uh, and have a long day. <laughs> but I'm doing all right. Um, so I don't know about you all, but I, I don't know how you're feeling, but with several good vaccines kind of on the table now, I'm starting to feel like we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. I feel like we're maybe seeing the possibility of how we uh, get out of this. I'm hoping that maybe by summer, safe visits to London will be possible uh, for me again. I've been pretty risk-averse during the, the pandemic. I've hardly gone out. I've barely seen Cambridge since March. And I haven't been to, to London at all since March. But uh, that's me. I've, I'm particularly... I've been risk-averse during this uh, whole thing. So, yeah, but I think the... I'm going to plan. I'm going to try to plan to go to London, see this exhibit, maybe in the summer. Hopefully things will be nice uh, and better by then. So take care. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. <laughs>